As you dive into this teaching from High Point Church, we pray that it will help you grow in your faith as you believe in, belong to, and become more like Jesus. If these messages bless you, would you consider giving back in support of this ministry? You can give and learn more about High Point at www.highpoint.church. Well, I have always been fascinated at how people groups and communities and cultures get created and formed and the lifestyles that people live. I've had opportunities to be with villages in Nicaragua and with tribes in Tanzania and in cities and in Europe. And it's, it's an incredible picture of the beauty and the diversity of how God has made us to be as human beings. But here's a few I have not personally experienced. I wonder if you have. This is a people group in Indonesia. They're, uh, they're known for building these elaborate tree houses that they build for their tribe. And they, they build them 40 feet off the ground. How would you like to live up in that thing? How about uh, in Australia? This is a community called Cooper Petty. And you might be like, well, like, where's the community? It looks like it's just a big desert. Well, actually, they build all their houses underground so that they can beat the 120-degree heat in the summer. And so they build their houses as dugouts in the desert. Uh, you might have, I think you did, because we all did, felt isolated during COVID, right? We were in lockdown, and we couldn't see each other. We couldn't get together with people in community. This is thought to, have be, thought to be the most isolated community of people on the planet. It's North Sentinel Island. It's a, t- a territory of India. And uh, it has very little or has had very little communication or interaction with the outside world. So little is known of it. They estimate that between 50 to 200 people live on this small island and the language does not come close or resemble any other languages. All right, here's an experimental community. How about this one? This was an experimental community that took place for 17 months. There were six people, four different uh, countries. They got together, got locked in to this experiment with NASA where they were simulating the Mars 500 mission together. I don't think I wanted to be in that one. But how about for you and for me? It begs the question, what is community? We say it all the time. We throw these words out, hey, my community, and in our community, and in our, what's real community? What is it for you and for me? I mean, is it the town you live in, the grocery store you go to, the people you know, your kid's soccer team, or the young adult group that you're, like, what what really is this thing called community? Because I think we can all agree, it got turned upside down this past year, and we're just trying to piece it all back together. What makes up community? That's our question for today. Or maybe I'll say it the way that the Bible says it. Who is your neighbor? That's what we're going to see in Luke 10. Grab your Bible and turn there because Jesus is going to press into our hearts and our minds deeper because if we understand who our neighbor is, we can really understand what community is. So here's a better question as we get started. What is your role in neighboring? Now, I know that there's a few English majors in here and English teachers that are going, Steve, Neighbor is a noun, or neighboring is an adjective. There is no verb of neighboring. Well, guess what? I was a music major in college. Today, there is a verb called neighboring. It's what we do. We put it into action. What is your role and my role in neighboring? I'm going to give you the whole message here in one sentence. Here's our definition of neighboring for today. Genuine neighboring disrupts religion, defines relationship, 
dictates responsibility and determines redemption. We're in Luke 10. We're starting in verse 25. This is a famous story. Some of you maybe have heard it before, but I think we're going to see some new insights. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. Luke 10, starting in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Great question. So Jesus said to him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the lawyer's not quite done. He's like, no, let's press into this a little bit further, Jesus. So he says, desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But then a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine that he sent, set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So then Jesus comes back and he says, which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to this man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do Likewise, here's our first call to action today. Genuine neighboring disrupts religion. Now I know a few of you are going, whoa, hold on for a minute. Are we like kind of in church right now? Like, isn't this church thing kind of religion? Isn't this Christian thing kind of religion? Well, yeah, it depends on your definition of religion. Because what I think Jesus is going to show us is empty religion. When it just becomes about the rules and the rituals and, and, and we're just going through the motions void of relationship with God. That's why the lawyer, he said he was trying to justify himself. And so in verse 25, the context here, there's a debate taking place. He put Jesus to the test saying, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Hey, this is serious business, this idea of neighboring. Jesus brings up neighboring as part of how we're going to inherit eternal life. And so there's this debate This lawyer's testing Jesus. Now, this would have been actually pretty normal in the day to have rabbis would have been in the community and and they're together discussing and debating theological questions and how to interpret the Old Testament. They'd go down to Starbucks and get their latte and they would discuss all of these theological issues. And this lawyer, he would have been an expert in Mosaic law. I mean, he, he knew it. He was the professor. He had it down. So, so this lawyer is kind of powering up to Jesus and saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull out my old high school debate club tactics on Jesus. L- let's get into the technicalities a little bit. Define it for it. He knew the answer. Wasn't that interesting? The lawyer knew the answer. What must I do to inherit life? Well, I must love God and love neighbor. He quotes Deuteronomy 6.5 and he quotes Leviticus 19.18 and Jesus goes, you got it right. And then he goes to, to define, well, who's your Neighbor, who's my neighbor? And here's what he's doing. The lawyer starts by talking in these generalities. 
He's trying to make it more complex. Let's get more philosophical. Let's, let's just debate the finer points of this. And then what does Jesus do? He makes him think of a person. He makes it personal. He says, hey, there was this man. Because neighboring is personal. I, I would think about it like this. One of Sarah, my really good friends, when she was in high school, she accidentally started a fire in her bedroom. And uh, a true story, she ended up burning down her entire house. Everything gone, like down to the ground, the, everything. The pictures are gone, the furniture's gone, the whole house is gone. And the priests and the Levites, this, this is like what, what my friend would have done is when her parents, she finally gets them and first they're like, we're just glad that you're okay. And then second, when they get it, hey, what happened? She's like, well, I've been thinking about this and I'd like to go down to the firehouse and discuss with the chief about the policies and the procedures about the response time of the fire department responding to a fire and figure, how about this? Don't have an open flame in your bedroom. Can we just start there? But that's what the priests and the Levites are doing. They're trying to make it more complicated. They're trying, to, they're trying to not address the real issue that Jesus is trying to address, which is this is about you. This is about your heart. So Jesus is there and he's going, his brother's not getting it. This dude, he's like, I'm not cutting through. Okay, let me tell you a story. So let's get into the story. Verse 30, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was a 17 mile journey. And he fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him and departed, leaving him for dead. Now let's look at the actions of the priest and the Levi. It goes on to say, now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, now the Levite would have been the assistant to the priest. So he was a religious figure as well. And when he came by to the place and saw him, he passed by as well on the other side. Hey, so Mr. Lawyer, can you crack the code on this case? This is what I mean by, by neighboring disrupts religion. Can we, can we hear this today? It was the religious leaders that didn't do anything. It was the religious people. It was the church people that didn't respond to the guy that was in need. It's the definition of empty religion. You know it in your mind. You know the rituals, but it doesn't become personal. You don't put it into practice. It's what theologians call orthodoxy versus orthopraxy. Orthodoxy is right thought. That's good. We should have that. Orthopraxy is right practice. And we need both orthodoxy and orthopraxy in our life that we know the right thing, but we do the right thing as well. I've loved music my whole life. As some of you know, I was our worship pastor here for, for years. And uh, I, I just love growing up. I love music. I love listening to music. I've watched music videos of my favorite bands. I'd go to concerts and I had a vision for my life. I was going to be a rock star. Right? You know, I just, my 10-year-old self. And then I had a 10-year-old existential crisis. Do you know what it was? It turns out you have to know how to play music if you want to do that with your life. Right? And so I'm like, okay, well, I'll start taking some piano lessons. And I, I start learning some music and I start practicing. I get disciplined. I start learning. And I, I figure out at a young age that I can't just have this lofty idea of what I want to do with my life. I better have some skills to go along with it. And this is what I think the priest and the Levite, these two religious guys, the, the, the pastor and, and a lot of the Levites were worship leaders. So this, this is what I think they're, they're missing is the priest and the Levite, they're going into the music shop, all the guitars on the wall lined up. 
And they're just walking down and going, man, that's my favorite brand. That's my favorite one. Ooh, that's my favorite wood species that I like this made of. And that's my favorite custom guitar. That's my favorite finish. That's my favorite this. I'm going to put my favorite string. That's a... How about you pick up a guitar and you start playing it? Right? Instead of just looking at all of these beautiful things on the shelf, pick one up, put in some practice, and start putting our faith into practice. Now, note, it was likely a Jewish man that got beat up and robbed. And so, what's crazy is this priest, this Levite, they actually passed by one of their own. They didn't even care for one of their their own people. And what we're going to see in a minute, they wait for it because Jesus is going to raise the bar on who our neighbor is. If I can just be honest with you for a minute, here's a fear of mine. It's a genuine fear. Is that if I'm not careful, if I'm not careful that I can very quickly get caught up in all the activity of the church and all the understandings of Christianity and all the ritual and all the activity and going to a group and serving and coming to church, all good things. But I can get so caught up into all of that that I might just walk by a need and an opportunity and a calling that Jesus would have to show compassion. And maybe you're not walking by on a daily basis. I know I'm not. Maybe you're not walking by beat up, bruised, battered people in the middle of the road on a daily basis. But can I share with you this morning, every single day of your life, you are walking by people who have been emotionally robbed, who have been spiritually robbed. They've been robbed of justice. They've been robbed of equality. They've been robbed of love. And so here's the difference between this religion and relationship. Here's what religion says. Religion says, what do I have to do or not do? Give me the list of the rules. I'll try to follow the rules. And I just want to stay within the guardrails. Relationship says, I do because of what's been done. I do because of the love that Jesus gave to me. I do because I I understand the compassion that God has on my life. Therefore, I'm compassionate to other people. I, I do because I so don't deserve all that God has given to me. Therefore, I want to extend what others don't deserve even from me. That's what relationship says. I love how 1 Corinthians 13 says it. It's a verse on love that gets quoted a lot. Uh, but there's a warning in here. Take a look. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I do not have love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, hey, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I have gained nothing. Hey, a verse like that, we should have some warning lights on the dashboard of our life going off, going, man, I, I got to do an internal audit on this love thing, on this compassion thing for, for caring for my neighbor, uh, that I might have a vision for my life to bring compassion to, to the lost and the lonely and the least in this world, because that's what Jesus did to you and me. And guess what? You are the lost and the lonely and the least in the eyes of Jesus. And he brings you love. And he brings you new life. Hey, second call to action. Genuine neighboring, it, it defines relationship. At time, it disrupts religion in the name of, def, of defining relationship. Verse 33, here's what we're going to see. The game changer. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had what church? 
Compassion. Relationship prioritizes people over programs and policies. It prioritizes people over our position in society, whatever that might be for you. It's a simple concept, but it is hard to live out in our lives. Now, in the original Greek, this word for compassion, there's actually six words in the New Testament Greek for compassion. We just get one. They say them all the same, but there's actually six different meanings. And the one here found in Luke 10 is interesting. The root of the word is actually the word intestine. Stick with me. The word is intestine. Here's why. Literally, this word compassion means this. It means that it was to have your guts turned over. This word compassion means I am so sick to my stomach over the, the love and pity that I have for this other person in my life. That's how much I care. It makes my stomach churn. And the fact that this man who came by and came alongside this beaten and bruised guy was a Samaritan is not insignificant. He crossed over ethnic and racial divides to see this care and compassion come. You see, the Jews hated the Samaritans. They hated each other. They were against each other. And so what the good Samaritan shows coming alongside this Jewish man is is he's coming to care for the other. Not only that, he's coming to care for somebody who is against him. And if I can just say it, like we actually see it in the Bible, we see it in our world, we see it in in our country. The, The overt and covert racism, it's not new. I know we've been talking about it a lot the last couple years. This is not a new problem. We've seen it all throughout history. We see it terribly in our own country. We see it in the world. We see it in the world right now between Israel and Hamas and at war with one another. What Over what? Over racial and ethnic tension between these two people groups. But here's what the Samaritan models for us. He's a role model. He's a role model to be a bridge against racism and and hate, to say that, yeah, I'm only going to help the people that are in my tribe or in my people group. Here's a picture of what the Good Samaritan looks like. This is a picture of a, a Jewish boy and a Palestinian boy just embracing one another. And it's actually become an iconic image of aspirational hope in the Middle East as, you know, the Middle East has been at war among each other pretty much for the entirety of the world. And the good Samaritan, here's what he didn't do. He didn't ask, hey, hey man, what's your, uh, what do you believe about this? What's your race? What's your nationality? Hey, uh, what got you down here? Did you do something wrong? He doesn't ask all those questions. He just, he just shows compassion. Now, here's what's wrong with this picture. This picture was actually taken in 1993 by an American journalist. And this picture is actually staged. It's not a real picture. It went viral uh, even in the 90s. These are two Jewish boys. They, They staged a picture dressing one of them up as a Palestinian boy because there was no way that they would ever get two people groups to actually show this kind of unity with one another. If I can just share sensitively from my heart, Church, let's let's be so careful to make sure that our compassion for the others of this world is not a staged compassion, but but it's a real compassion. It's a real care and love for one another. Jesus is raising the bar. Jesus is raising the standard for compassion. It's not optional, this compassion. So here's what neighboring is. Neighboring is stepping up to the plate, crossing over the line. Uh, neighboring is breaking the silence, speaking up for those who their voices have been turned down. 
It's standing with the marginalized. Here's what neighboring is. It's getting in closer proximity. Neighboring is stopping figuratively and literally in the middle of the road to have compassion on somebody who's in need. That's neighboring. Henry Nouwen says it like this. Henry Nouwen says, compassion asked us to go where it hurts, to enter into the places of pain, to share in brokenness, fear, confusion, anguish. Compassion challenges us to cry out with those in misery, to mourn with those who are lonely, to weep with those in tears. Compassion requires us to be weak with the weak, vulnerable with the vulnerable, powerless with the powerless. Compassion means full immersion in the condition of being human. Hey, it sounds a whole lot to me kind of like this incarnation thing, uh, this God of the universe that put on flesh and came to earth to meet with people, to mourn with those who mourn, to walk and meet us in our broken condition. 1 John 3 summarizes it for us in scripture. By this we know love, that he laid down his life. Jesus laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters. But even if the world's goods, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother or sister in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. So here's our formula for today. If you're wondering, well, Steve, I get it. I, I want to be the good Samaritan. I like, sign me up. I'm in. Let's do it. Here's our formula for genuine neighboring today. It's simpler than you think it is. One is see the need. Are your eyes open? In a day and age where we're walking around and we, we are so focused on the next thing we're getting to and I got to do this and here's my schedule for the day and I got, are your eyes open to even see the need around you? The second thing is believe the need. Uh, is your heart softened? I, I understand we live in a day where there's so many needs and you see it all around you. Compassion fatigue is real. You're like, I, I, how many more people can I help? But believe the need. I said it before, but the Good Samaritan doesn't come and ask him a bunch of qualifying questions about how he got in this place. I don't know, the Bible doesn't say it. Maybe he did something wrong against another person and they retaliated back against him. Maybe he, did, he doesn't ask any of those questions. He just believes, hey, there's a need right here. And I have, the I have the power within me to do good, as Proverbs 3 says. And finally, just meet the need. Is your spirit willing? So what do you need to do this week? What does it look like? How could we put this into practice to see the need, believe the need, meet the need this week? Maybe even right now, God's putting somebody in your mind where you're like, you know what? I, I knew that they were going through something. I knew they'd been having a difficulty. They, I talked to them a month or two ago and I really haven't circled back and, and maybe I need to drop something at their house. Maybe I need to give them a call. Maybe you're gonna pray this week. God, would you maybe, maybe just put a stranger in, in my path? Uh, would you give me eyes to see a need? And I'm just telling, if you pray that prayer, hey God, would you, would you put a need in front of me this week? I, I want to meet. I'm telling you, he's going to put a need in front of you. Try it. Maybe on the way in, you saw, uh, we have an opportunity this week called Neighbors Helping Neighbors. Uh, we do this every quarter, but just opportunities to care for our community. I am just so proud of how the hundreds of volunteers and leaders through High Point Cares run our care centers each and every week doing this, neighboring really, really well. Can we give it up for the Lord and how he's using High Point Cares to reach so many people? 
And so this opportunity, Neighbors Helping Neighbors, uh, this spring, is called Spring Clean Edition. And here's why. This is just a simple opportunity to pick up a, a basket and there's a card with the specific needs that, that are needed there, hygiene products and toiletries and cleaning supplies. And that you would just go and fill it up this week and, and bring it back. And as we have people coming into our care center, we can just bless them with those needs. And I love the intentionality of our High Point Cares team because you might be wondering, hey, is that a big need or what happens? Well, actually all those things that are on that list out in the lobby uh, are things that the average person can't get through their SNAP card or the modern day version of food stamps. They, they're not allowed to buy them with that. And so our team said, why don't we get all those products and we'll, we'll bless people with things that they can't buy with those cards. But hey, here's the question. It's one thing to fill a basket. I hope hundreds of us do it and bring it back next week and we can neighbor well. But how far are you willing to go to maybe even respond to a need of somebody you've never met before? I mean, how, how open are you to the interruption in your life? How open are you to being bothered by the needs of somebody else? Because what we're gonna see here next is, is how much it took for the Good Samaritan, how much of his time and energy it took. And that's our Third, two more call to actions. Our third call to action is genuine neighboring dictates responsibility. So not only does a good Samaritan stop and look and check out the scene, he takes responsibility. We're going to turn up the heat here a little bit because watch how the good Samaritan moves. Verse 34, he went to him, he bound him up. He bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then, Then he set him up on his own animal. He brought him to an inn and took care of him. This is neighboring. How did he do it? I don't know. I mean, did did he get down with this guy and say, hey, hey, man, how you doing? Hey, you're doing all right. Hey, I'm here. I'm here to help. I got got some bandages. I I got some medicine. I got got some other clothes. I'm going to get you the clothes. Here, let's get up. Come on. I got you, man. Let's get you up on my donkey here. Just rest here. I'm going to take care of you and we're going to get you down to this inn and you can rest up and and heal up. You see, it's not until we get in proximity with other people that we really understand the level of compassion that we can have in this world. And, And here's what happens with proximity. And this actually happens in every relationship. That distance creates distortion. Every relationship in your life. This can be applied to. Distance creates distortion. I'm not just seeing it clearly anymore. and I'm kind of misinterpreting what's really going on in this relationship. Distance creates distortion, but proximity creates perspective. It it gives you a new way of seeing things. It opens your eyes. It opens your, your heart in a new way. And then verse 35, the most radical verse in this entire story is this. And the next day, look what he does. He took out two denarii, that was the currency of the day, and he gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when you come back. There is no limit on his generosity. Uh, he's not just throwing five bucks at him. He's not just giving him a shirt. He's not just paying for the you know, Starbucks or the car behind him in the drive-thru. He's saying, here's the credit card, the full line of credit, whatever you need to do to take care of this guy. I'm going to be away for a couple days. I'll come back. I'll check on him. I'm going to pay w- w- whatever more you spend. A full line of credit. It's radical compassion. It's radical neighboring. Can, can you imagine that just for a minute? The guy you'd never met before. And you already did a bunch of good stuff. Like, couldn't you get to the end and be like, okay, good, good luck. I did a lot. I'm feeling pretty good about myself. I helped this guy out. 
No, 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 he keeps pressing, he keeps pressing. Hey, here's the card, whatever, whatever more you spend. I'll come back, I'll make good on all of it, just take care of him. Many of you probably heard uh, this past December when we did our One Generosity Initiative. We remember that? And it was amazing and people were so generous. And one of those initiatives was that we had this radical idea that we wanted to plant a church inside the walls of Stateville Correctional Center just 30 minutes down the road. And this past week, as we've been working through how would this happen and what would it look like, we had a meeting with the senior warden. His name is David Gomez and an incredible man of God. And so we drive down to the prison and we're meeting in his office and we're talking about all these things and what it would look like. And he stops and he goes, hey, um, Hey, I got some great news for you. Like, let me just interrupt for a minute. I actually just got the email from the Illinois Department of Corrections as they've been going through this. Nobody's ever done this in the state of Illinois before, trying to plant a a full-blown church inside the prison walls. And he goes, hey, hey, I just got some good news. The IDOC said they're going to give High Point Church full access, full availability to plant a church inside the walls of a prison. They said, full green light, let's go. And then what happened next, I wasn't prepared for. He goes, and um, we want you guys to be, you know, they hadn't let anybody in all these, you know, 15, 18 months, visitors inside the prison because of COVID for obvious reasons. And so he says, we want you guys to be the first ones to be the first visitors back inside uh, the prison. And then he goes, and we're going to do that right now. And so we leave his office and I didn't go anticipating this. And he gives us a full tour of the prison. Not just the theater where we're gonna uh, be hosting services in, but in going from you know, cell house to cell house to solitary confinement and talking with guys and meeting guards. And I'll tell you, I, I wasn't prepared for what I saw. And, and if I can just be honest with you, as a pastor, I don't know if I've ever felt more inadequate in my entire life as a pastor. 19 years, 30 years in prison behind bars. I mean, what, what, what do I have to offer? Like, what, like, I know I have the gospel and I know how to share the, the gospel, but I mean, how, how, how do I bridge this relationship? And we had a friend with us. Uh, we introduced you to him in December through the One Initiative. His name's Rodney Massey. And so I was with him and we actually went into solitary confinement and Rodney spent 25 years in the Illinois Department of Corrections and I just watch Rodney go into action. And, and we walk up and he just starts talking to this guy. He's like, hey, how's your day going, man? Come on, get your head up. You gotta hold your head up. And the guy gets out from his bunk and he comes over and we're just foot away talking. And Rodney just goes, hey, what's, what's your story, man? What's going on? I've been in here 19 and a half years. I, I don't know if I can do it, man. I don't know if I can make it. And Rodney just, boom. Hey, listen, do you have a Bible? Hey, have you heard of Jesus? Hey, I gotta tell you a story. I spent 25 years in prison and I met Jesus reading my Bible on a bunk just like that. And if you want hope or you're not feeling like you have hope right now, the only place that you can find hope is in a relationship. And Ronnie's just preaching. Like he's just preaching to this guy. And I'll tell you, you, you could just see the hope fill up in the sky as Rodney shares, hey, I've been in there 25 years. I got out, I met my wife, I got married. I started a business and God gave me a new life and he can do that for you too. It's real neighboring. Anybody out for one more, uh, uh, some good news in church? Anybody else want some good news? Well, like good news in church. 
Well, I wanted to, to mention Rodney because I, I want to announce that Rodney is coming on pastoral staff at High Point Church to be the Stateville campus pastor as we launch this new church. You can, you, if you want to give, give him a hard time, we like to call him the weeping prophet, Jeremiah, because the, the world cannot talk about Jesus without just crying. Just every time he's talking about Jesus, he's crying. He loves the Lord and he loves the word. Hey, our final call to action today is genuine neighboring determines redemption. Now let's not miss this today. Here is what Jesus is calling us to do. Jesus is calling us with every person, every opportunity, everyone that crosses our path for us to bring a radical love and compassion to be their neighbor. And I might add, I believe, especially for those that are other than us, that don't look like us or talk like us or think like us, it's compassion like Rodney brought into Stateville. Verse 36 says this, which of these three, is it the priest? Is it the Levite? Is it the good Samaritan? Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says to him, and he's saying to you and to me today, you go and do likewise. As we close the message today, can I, can I just remind you of the context of this story once again, that it was in a discussion about eternal life and where do we find this eternal life? Let's just read it one more time because it says in verse 25, behold, the lawyer stood up, he put him to the test. What should I do to inherit eternal life? What's in the law? And then he goes on to say, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor. He says, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Now, let's not get our theology messed up here. Like, hey, Steve, are you telling me that I get saved by helping people? Are you telling me I get saved by doing good works? Are you telling me I get saved by having compassion? No, that's not what I'm saying. If you're a good student of the Bible, you can turn to Ephesians 2, and it says you're saved by faith, not by good works, so that nobody can boast. So, hey, well, what's he really saying? Why are they talking about eternal life? Here's what Jesus is saying. If you are actually saved. That this compassion we're talking about for other people has to be, not, 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 not can be, it must be an, a natural outflowing of our faith in Jesus. That the two go together. We see this in James chapter two. It defines it for us. What good is it then, my brothers and sisters, if somebody says they have faith, but they don't have any works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things that they actually need for the body, what good is it? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, it's dead. As the worship team comes, can I just encourage you today? We should look so strange to the world around us. Like the world should look at these people called Christ followers and go, what is wrong with those people? Oh, why are they so weird? Why are they so loving with all these people? Well, why do they have so much compassion? Why do they travel all around the world in order to help people and care for people? Well, why do they live out their faith in a community where they're serving people and, and loving people in prison and, and meeting people's needs and, and serving them in care centers? I mean, what's wrong with these people? 
But here's a hard word for us today. I mean, maybe the gospel that we're proclaiming isn't so attractive to some people because they're not seeing the faith and the works. They're not seeing the the faith in Jesus Christ and the radical compassion that Jesus brought to this earth. So as we stand together, as you stand to your feet, let me ask this. How do you need to neighbor this week? Every single person in this room, I believe, has a choice to make this week, a decision. I don't know what the choice is for you, but I think that there are choices for us to make. Uh, Maybe it's the person that God put in your mind. Maybe it's that stranger that you wanted to pray for. Maybe it's just picking up a basket and filling it up and caring for people. But can I ask you this week, let's be neighbors. Uh, Let's be good neighbors that love Jesus and love people. So God, we call out and we pray to you right now, Lord. God, would you burn in our hearts with a passion for you and a passion for people. God, would you give us a passion for compassion? God, would you rewire our minds and rewire our hearts to think differently, to see the need, to believe the need, to meet the need. God, that our world would see us moving and acting in a way that looks like the Good Samaritan, that looks like how Jesus lived. God, would you make it so in our lives? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Come on, let's sing together. Burn like a fire in me, God.